Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear the story of someone strong enough to bear it all. The Naked Podcaster is a representation of freeing yourself, giving you permission to be real in all your quirkiness, baggage, struggles to success, and tragedy to triumph. I'm so excited you're joining the journey. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. Hello and welcome to the Naked Podcaster. This is Jen Taylor and I am with Leslie Krongold. Leslie, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fantastic. And I know if you uh, you have a little bit of a cough and it's no big deal. I don't care and neither do the listeners. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I'm so excited about this. You have a podcast called Glass Half Full. Mm-hmm. And all of that information, of course, is going to be in the show notes. Tell me what you're doing right now and who you are. Well, I've been, I started the podcast about three and a half years ago, and I like to think of it as an evolution of the support groups I facilitated in person, which I did for, I'm still doing them, you know, uh, um, but at a lesser degree, but I did it for about 20 years, and I just happened to have this opportunity to facilitate support groups for adults with neuromuscular disease shortly after I was diagnosed. And I looked at it as an opportunity to learn and educate the support groups. And that's what I did for a long time. And then I kind of couldn't do it anymore at that level. So um, I, I have a, a partner who's 10 years younger and is avidly into listening to a lot of podcasts. And so I thought, okay, that's my next chapter. So I produce one about every two weeks. And the, the goal is really to uh, introduce people with who may have chronic health conditions or caregivers or just people who are, you know, interested in health and wellness to learn something positive that they can do to help themselves. And it really mirrors a lot of what I explore to help my condition, which has no cure or treatment. And we can go ahead and jump into that. I mean, take us back to whatever point you want and and start describing the struggle. I, I love some of the connections and the information that I've read about you. So I'll make sure that we make some of those connections, but jump in with, even if it wasn't the chronic illness, if it was before that, some of the struggles that you've had. Um, in my struggles, well, I mean, physically, I, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, I'm very grateful for having pretty much 40 years of decent health because there are people with my condition that um, have it a lot worse and it impinges on their career, their quality of life. But I had a lot of GI problems when I was younger, a teenager, early college. And I learned a lot of, um, I experimented to mitigate those symptoms, mostly by gradually becoming a vegetarian and, excuse me, eventually um, starting a yoga practice, which has helped me amazingly. But, um, I mean, emotionally, you know, uh, I I probably had, uh, you know, it's hard to compare. I mean, there was a period where I was on antidepressants in my 20s. I had been a school teacher and I was laid off and kind of set me on a downward spiral for a year, two years, but I bounced back. But I would say, you know, more of my um, emotional issues during my teenage years were grappling with my my uh, sexual identity. I, I came out in high school and, you know, coming out as a, lifelong process, but, you know, I would say I am no longer (laughs) uh, troubled or find any difficulty in accepting 
uh, um, my identity. I've been uh, married to a woman for uh, over 20 years. So I'm pretty content with all that. So for years, you know, I, I've, I've had a, a, a fine existence. And, and then I guess, you know, more of the challenge came, you know, when I was diagnosed in my mid-30s. Was that before or after your mom? So my mother was diagnosed with myotonic muscular dystrophy in probably 1990 in Florida. And I was out in California in 89. (coughs) Excuse me. And no one knew what that was. I still don't know if she at that time knew it was genetic. I certainly wasn't told. And the internet, um, I guess it existed in some form then, but I probably wasn't on it. So I didn't search for it. But my mother had been sick a lot during my childhood and early years. Um, She was a smoker. She was a drinker. And she had all kinds of um, GI, respiratory issues, et cetera, et cetera. And then about a year, year and a half after she was diagnosed with this muscle disease, she was diagnosed with brain and lung cancer, which (laughs) she was adamant about. It had nothing to do with her smoking. (laughs) Of course not. Yeah, yeah. But she was in in denial about a few things. (laughs) So she passed away in early 92, and I wasn't diagnosed till, I think, 98. So, and I was only diagnosed because I guess at some point in 98, I realized I had some uh, wrist issues. I had difficulty opening a car door, you know, at my, my uh, wrist would sort of freeze and I couldn't release the grip. So I remembered she had talked about that, but you know, it had been several years. And again, I had no understanding that it was genetic. So that, that I went to a GP, you know, with that kind of uh, symptom they thought it was nutritional, they did blood tests, and then they referred me to a neurologist who shortly after diagnosed me with myotonic dystrophy. Was it a process to get that diagnosis or did you make the connection about your mom by then? Because you're right, in the early 90s, there wasn't a whole lot of internet. I mean, even in the later 90s, there was... We weren't. We didn't have quite the level of information that we have now. So I'm guessing that that still wasn't a oh. tremendous part. Yeah, I um, I remember talking with my dad and asking him at some point during this quote unquote diagnostic odyssey. Um, what was the name of that thing Mom had? You know. Yeah. Because we never said she died from that, but she had gone to University of Miami Medical School and was a, uh, I think the subject in a research study. <clears throat> I remember she told me she had to stand, I guess, in shorts or some kind of gown, you know, where her calf muscles were visible in front of medical students. To, so they could see that one calf muscle was severely reduced, uh, weakened. So he told me myotonic dystrophy. So I came with that information, I think, to the neurologist. Okay. And is that when you found out that it's genetic? Yeah. So at Kaiser Permanente, where I've been a member for many, many years here in Northern California, they, uh, they 
so there's a test called uh, EMG. Uh, I, it's a long term, but it's putting needles into your muscles and listening to activity. So that's kind of a preliminary diagnosis because by 98, they had a blood test. So I was then, uh, you know, because of that EMG, the gatekeeper said, okay, you can have this expensive blood test. <coughs> and that came back with, the, you know, DNA evidence that it was a genetic condition. And then, is- I, oh, and then I went, then I was, uh, I was sent to a genetic counselor who's part of the Kaiser Health Team. And they have you bring in photos of your family members. And they're, because of this disease, it affects uh, smooth and skeletal muscles. There's a certain look that people develop in their adulthood that is you don't even need to do a genetic test. People just have this look of myotonic dystrophy. It would have been great to have known it was a possibility early on, but you still found out relatively early. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the fortunate things is that I never planned on having children. I mean, there was maybe, <laughs> I had a, a, a gay male friend um, who was the same age and he and his partner wanted me to be a surrogate. <laughs> and I contemplated that for about a month. You know, this is prior to my diagnosis. So I'm so glad I never did that because with each birth, there's a 50-50 probability that you will pass on the genetics for this disease, and it increases in severity with each generation. So many women I know, you know, with this disease who are my age or a little younger, they were not diagnosed until they had a child, and the child had this severe form, which is called congenital myotonic dystrophy. So... um in a way, I'm glad I didn't know any earlier because that could have impacted my educational and career pursuits. Yeah, that's really, well, I mean, I understand the 50-50. That makes total sense to me, right? That makes complete sense. Um, there's a 50-50 chance to pass it down, but the fact that it's progressive is that's kind of surprising. So if you have that 50% chance of having it, it's going to be worse for that person than another. So as a parent myself, I right. wouldn't want to take that risk. And, and many women who are young enough to still have children and are diagnosed and are feeling healthy, they can go through... Um, you probably know all this terminology. It's expensive, the process, but they could go through, uh, do, you, do you know the name of it? Um, where, you know, the eggs are tested. I be I, I can't remember. In vitro fertilization, Sorry. they can do it that way. Yes, you can go through IVF and know that that you're not you don't have that genetic marker. I have a son actually with something called Huntington's disease, and I adopted him. Oh at birth. yeah, right. Okay, I adopted him at birth. You don't test for it because it's an adult onset disease, just like yours, similar to yours. And so we never got him tested as a child. I mean the 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 geneticist and the neurologist basically just said, look, just treat him like a normal kid. And when he's an adult, he needs to decide if to get this test to find out if he has it. And it's important. So he hasn't done that yet. Um, he's only 19, mm-hmm. but it is important to know one, because you know what to expect in your life and you can set things up. And two, he shouldn't have children if he is a carrier because right. that continues. And, you know, as a, as a parent myself and in this situation, I mean, I've always been honest with him, getting tested will let you know how to direct the rest of your life 
without it being a surprise in your thirties, mm-hmm. um, because you know, you have, like, if you had known genetically, you were predisposed to this earlier and could have had the blood test earlier. If you had decided to, you could have known 10 years before you had symptoms. It just gives you more time to one, live your life and, and two, decide how you want to live your life and know that having children probably isn't a good idea. Um, so I have two comments. Actually, Huntington's disease is a trinucleotide disease, just like myotonic dystrophy. Okay. <clears throat> so often research that is done on one or the other helps feed uh, the research community about the other. How awesome. Yeah, yeah. So the other point about knowing earlier, I mean, in a perfect world, that makes a lot of sense. Right. But, <laughs> but. but a lot of people freak out. Yes, I know. And they, they, they just spiral into misery, uh, pity, lack of motivation. Yep. And yep. because there's no cure or treatment, they feel like they are powerless over it. Correct. So, and you know, I'm I'm looking. I you know that has been my um, motivating interest for over twenty years. Is what makes someone motivated to take care of their health, and while the next person who could be you know, quite intellectual, uh, has, you know, a lot of the same, um, you know, uh, socioeconomic standards and background access to healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, completely unmotivated, you know, so it's, uh, it's a conundrum. It is a guy. That's the word I was going to use. And ethically, I mean, really, it's about you, the one that could have the disease, deciding when and if you want to know. Mm-hmm. And for us, because we have so much more information, we just know if he decides not to get tested, we know what to look for. We know around the time that it would be an issue. And so it is absolutely his decision. Um, that's like a whole ethical, we could have a whole podcast just about that. Right. Right. Yeah. But you found out because, and then you found out it was genetic. And again, information is different now. We're a flood of information. We're inundated. And you, how did that affect you? Because your mom's death was probably at, at least in great part due to the cancer. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, um, so something that her, happened early on in my diagnosis was, well, I, I did have access to the internet in the, in the late 90s, but the information, you know, wasn't always reliable, as, as it is now. Um, but I found a uh, chart in some sort of medical research that had uh, anticipated symptoms for adult onset, which is what my condition is called. And it also included the estimated uh, duration of one's life. And it had 48 to 55 years old. So, you know, that was a staggering factoid to uh, digest. But, you know, and then my mother died uh, at 55. So I'm now 57, and you know it. Um, I'm just incredibly grateful because the odds are that the severity increases. So you know, ostensibly, I would have passed away before 55, which is right. when my mother died. But I believe a lot of my longevity and um, continued quality of life is a result of the self-care that I practice. And, you know, self-care is uh, talked about, you know, everywhere. I don't mean like the Gwyneth 
ultra goop self care. Right. <laughs> uh, my my self care routines are a little more intense and customized to where my um, you know how how the disease impacts my life. But I I, I believe that my diet and exercise and attitudinal practices are you know profound treatment for my condition were you practicing those things prior to knowing well ironically some of them yes like i started yoga sometime in my 20s i i mean i wasn't i didn't become a devotee but I was introduced to it and I would take classes here and there. And then I started down the path to vegetarian eating in college because I, uh, (coughs) the first memory of it was I always, I had always felt bloated after eating, you know, uh, any meals my mom cooked. I mean, they were delicious. But we had meat at every meal. But there was nothing in my um, purview that would have made me question, did meat have that impact on me? I just thought, that's how you feel after you eat. And (coughs) at some point in college, a friend of mine and I went to a grocery store. We bought like a half of a chicken and we were gonna cook it in the toaster oven in our dorm room. And I remember we were cleaning it. Of course, we were stoned, so it heightened the whole experience, but it was touching this flesh where I felt like it was an infant. And it freaked me out. And that was what, coupled with, you know, like feeling bloated, I started to gradually eliminate different forms of meat but that took several years i guess five six years until i um you know became a a real vegetarian and i'm mostly plant-based now okay i knew you had said that you were going because of gi issues in college so some of your diet you'd already changed at least and at the very least you were super open about making changes based on your health because you had that attitude. Yeah, and I don't know why I was like that because my mother and father were smokers, although my father did quit at some time when I think it was in college, he went cold turkey. But they did not model those health behaviors of, of uh, questioning and experimenting with diet or lifestyle um, you know, factors. And what else, once you found out the diagnosis, what else did you, how did you change things? How did you continue on? What was the experimentation of what would help and what wouldn't? And I'm, and did it change as the disease has progressed? Um, you know, I have to say, I think I learned a lot through the support group I was facilitating. <laughs> okay. Because I was always looking for speakers to... Um, know to educate us and I was approached by some people from a local acupuncture college and they were doing a study where they were looking for people who had muscle disease and they came and talked to us and I had never thought about acupuncture I mean I I probably you know this is wait a minute let's see maybe 2000, 2001. I mean, even though I'm in Northern California since 89, I was not immediately open to what I had previously thought were woo-woo. I love that you just said that. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I come from a very sort of middle working class family uh, in South Florida, uh, my parents both voted for Nixon, you know? <laughs> right. So, I, I, like, they didn't model this openness. So it was very gradual. So I, they were 
uh, and I was intrigued by what they had to say. I don't think I met the criteria for their study because I have remained ambulatory um, and, and they may have, I can't remember exactly what the requirements were. <coughs> but at that time I was still working full time and I had carpal tunnel syndrome or mild. And I thought, well, let me see if they can do something. So long story short, acupuncture um, kind of became the gateway to exploring alternative modes of healing. I mean, that was before I really looked at new, uh, you know, plant-based diets or yoga as treatment modalities. So the woo-woo stuff, what did you get into and how much did it help? Because I was right with you. I thought, that's ridiculous. And then mm -hmm. I realized, you know, no harm, no foul. It, mm -hmm. it probably won't do anything to me that's not good. But if it works, then there's then there you go. So what did acupuncture I love? Yeah, really, so acupuncture. Mm. What? Just go ahead. What really worked for you? Well, just the intake, the time you spend with a practitioner is a lot longer than you do with a Western trained doc. Correct. And the questions they ask, they ask you about your diet. They ask you about your bowel movements. I mean, I had never talked about that with a Western trained physician. And I still at that time had some quasi-IBS symptoms. And the practitioner, you know, who I first saw, was able to identify the glass of orange juice I had in the morning every day as a culprit. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, through diet modifications, and I was already vegetarian at this point, I was able, and you know, I don't know, I'll be totally transparent. According to China, traditional Chinese medicine, <clears throat> one bowel movement, well-formed bowel movement a day is considered healthy. Well, I move my bowels several times a day, and they were not always well-formed. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, so there's a problem there, maybe. Yeah. Since we're naked here, Jen, you know. We are I'm naked. We are. And, you know, come on. We got an icon for poop. So, uh, or a modicon. Um, anyhow, I, through acupuncture, I, I was able to change all that. And really be much more intentional about the vegetarian food I was eating. Because I never questioned what kind of oils is that restaurant using in the preparation of their food? Isn't um, it crazy the things you just have to start looking at? Well, you know, this is something that I tell other people about. It's like a restaurant is a business. They want to make money. So if you're going to a restaurant to eat a lot of food for a cheap price, how do you think they're making that work for them? Yeah. They're using the lowest quality ingredients they have access to. So, I mean, that, when you, when you realize it's like a business model, you know, it's like they're not out there with the motive of like, let me make you healthy. <laughs> no. So as a vegetarian, you, you can eat a crappy diet, you know, and, and not really uh, achieve optimal health. So I learned a lot through acupuncture, and I also, uh, you know, helped my carpal tunnel. Um, I just became more enlightened about energy medicine, and that took time. You know, I'm, I'm reasonably educated, but there's some things that you need to hear over and over from different perspectives to get it, and... Um, I know that I felt my body was stagnant 
I would be fatigued. It would impact my breathing. I'd breathe more shallow. It would impact my ability to speak. You could see the energy sucked out of my face. And I talked to a neurologist about that who knew my disease, and he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, have you tried cognitive-based therapy? (laughs) So it wasn't until, you know, acupuncture where I learned about chi, the energy that moves through your body. And I started to learn how to regulate my chi, where I started feeling better. When people talk about woo-woo, like my husband initially included in that. Now, it was for me, too, energy work and stuff like that. There are two examples, especially with men. Most men know who Bruce Lee is and think he was great. Mm-hmm. And there's no way you can like him and think he was great and not believe in the power of your body and energy and how you can shift it. It's not possible. And the other thing that I always say is, you know, have you ever been ready to give like a presentation, even if it was back in high school and you throw up or you get sick or you're going to go play a game or like I'm a runner, so run a race or something and you have to poop. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's your body physically reacting to emotional, an emotional state, mm-hmm. your nerves or your, so once you realize that, oh, well, yeah, of course, like that's easy to understand because most of us have experienced something like that. Once you understand that, well, then what if you take it a step further? If you have a bigger thing that's emotional, it can, it can affect you physically and our bodies are holding on to some of that. Now, in a situation like you where you have a diagnosis, it doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make everything go away, but it can really monitor it a lot or alter it or would you agree with that? Oh, I I believe I've mitigated my symptoms. I mean, I no, I would there's no cure for this. I mean, it's genetic. But I I strongly believe that I'm still here today, able to conduct, you know, an interview with you because of the lifestyle practices I've implemented over the years. Now, you know, I I believe I will eventually succumb uh, to the disease, and and that's because you know there's there's no quote-unquote cure for it yet but uh my my goal is to empower people you know with my disease and other chronic diseases to really explore healthy non-invasive ways to help control and mitigate the symptoms they live with i love that it's and And I love your attitude on it. I mean, I've read more about you and things that you have discussed. And so a lot of it is attitude and a lot of it is just doing the things that you can do. You're right about what's in things. You can you can say that you're eating vegetarian. We use an anti-inflammatory diet. Mm -hmm. And just because something's gluten-free, for example, doesn't mean that it's healthy. It means it doesn't have gluten. <laughs> so like they can put a ton of sugar in it and crappy oil and you, it would be better to just eat gluten. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you really have to advocate for yourself and learn a lot, but it's, it's really interesting how much different and better you feel. So tell me about that or, um, Maybe not. I know that your disease progresses. So I guess the best way I can think to say it is over time, you would normally feel worse or have more symptoms, Mm -hmm. but you've been able to slow that down through your diet and your, and your (laughs) woo-woo. Well, you know, I mean, I have no idea, right? I mean, I'm just N of one, a sample of one, um, I did participate in a longitudinal study for my disease and the physical therapist. So I saw her three times over four years. And she said that I maintain a range of motion in my legs and arms because of my yoga practice. Mm. So that was a um, 
you know, that was nice to hear. Uh, but uh, so this, this is a little tangential. I, I used to feel like, oh, you have to be a vegetarian or a vegan. And, and I no longer feel that way. You know, I know not everybody um, wants to or, or believes in a plant-based diet. All I would add, it, you know, or suggest is that know the source of the food you're eating. Avoid processed foods and meats. You know, if you are eating fish or beef or chicken, understand how, you know, where it came from. And, uh, you know, know that if you're going to a restaurant paying $8 for steak, you're probably not getting, you know. <laughs> it might not be a prime cut. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I don't know. I mean, I mean, it, it, just be more mindful of food choices. Right. So I'm sorry, Jen. So your your question was how. I was wondering how much you think it helped you with prolonging or slowing things down. And I understand you are just one, like <laughs> there is no, there, you are the whole case study, but generally in other people with the same diagnosis, it's got, you've got to be worlds ahead. Um, I just know that in the last six months I had uh, four people with my disease die. Now, one was a young girl who had congenital and, and you know, I, I know her uh, parents said I'm sure she was, had access to all the best uh, health and food and it was just a, a product of the disease. Uh, you know, younger people don't live as long with this disease. Hers was a sudden death, a heart failure. Um, two of the other people I was friends with, they were both, uh, about five years younger. Um, one man in Switzerland was a smoker and, um, he ate meat. <laughs> uh, I met him, we, we traveled together a few times. He definitely didn't eat like I eat, um, and, and he was diagnosed in his mid-30s as well. The other woman was diagnosed a little younger than I was and had been in a wheelchair for many years and perhaps may have not passed away if she'd been more knowledgeable about the symptom dysphagia, which is swallowing difficulty, <coughs> which is a common symptom of people who have neurological conditions like Parkinson's, um, MS. And she was eating a sandwich and choked on it and went into a coma for 10 days and then died. And this is someone I've known for years through the support group. And my first thought is, what the hell was she doing eating a sandwich? I haven't eaten a sandwich in so many years, I've totally changed the consistency, the texture of my food because I am prone to coughing and choking. So, um, you know, there's a change that has really nothing to do with being a vegetarian. It's just how I consume food. A lot of people eventually get a feeding tube, um, a peg, and that's because often, you know, they, they can't swallow, they can't chew. Anyhow, I'm going on a tangent because um, I, I do feel very strongly about uh, people need to change their diet when they have symptoms of dysphagia. It's just insane. Well, it's important. I mean, you want to live, I, I think there's two, maybe two ways people think. One is you get the best quality of life for the longest period of time. Mm -hmm. But some people are like, uh, 
you know, YOLO, you only live once. I'm going to eat cake if I want to eat cake. And if that means I die younger, I'm, you know, then at least I live my life eating cake. And I, I I mean, people are going to have to make that decision themselves. I'm more like you where I think, geez, how much can we actually monitor this and be able to, um, prolong things and give a better quality of life, a higher quality of life for a longer period of time. But I understand not everybody feels that way. Just like some people don't want to know about the diagnosis until they have to. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm just jumping to conclusions that you have lived a healthier, longer, better quality life because of the changes that you made. Oh, I mean, I believe that. And I, and I, I just, um, I'm just hesitant to say that because I'm close with a lot of people in my patient community and I don't want it to ever appear like I'm judging them. Um, You know, they listen to my podcast. I'm active in our patient um, organization, but I am, and I, I, I want to honor and respect, you know, where people are at, you know. I just, I want to model my behaviors and say, hey, if you have questions, you need any guidance, I'm here for you. Right. Exactly. I understand that. I, I respect that. So can we talk, can we segue into the fact that all of us are going to die every one of us and we never know what when it is but when you receive a diagnosis it makes it more apparent or evident or imminent i'm not sure what the right adjective is here you know that your possibility the chances of um dying is going to be because of the diagnosis instead of something random happening you it's very much in your face more than me for example so I know that in your past, when you were younger, you you didn't have suicide attempts, but you had suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then moving on, you know, you, you worked through that yourself. And I want to make that tie-in because I think so many people are in bad places. And then when you kind of work out and you get a diagnosis that could seem like a death sentence, you know, you had to have been so thankful that you worked yourself out of that. And maybe that attitude and mindset is part of what helps you when you receive the diagnosis. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, when I was younger, I definitely was depressed a lot. And I think part of that was having a dysfunctional family. You know, my mother was an alcoholic. Um, I was an only child, so I didn't have siblings to bounce experiences off of. And <clears throat> although I had friends, I was instructed <laughs> not to talk about family matters with friends. So I kept a lot of that in. And I think coupled with, you know, the realization that I was different, you know, was started happening 12, 13, 14 years old. And, you know, you you didn't have uh, LGBT organizations in the the 70s, you know. Um, Yes. You had Anita Bryant in Florida. um, And you had a lot of, you know, scary imagery. So I think that was kind of what fostered this, you know, uh, a negative, like, definitely pessimistic attitude, glass half empty. (laughs) Right, exactly. Because I used to wonder, will I live to 30? That was like my target age. Can I make it? Can I survive life till 30? And, um... Before I moved out here in 89, I don't know, like 87, I got turned on to uh, what was EST and became Landmark Education, but it was the um, forum. 
Are you familiar with that? No, no. Werner Earhart. Am I am I dating myself, Jen? <laughs> I don't think so, but I'm not familiar with it, so I'm not sure why. E S T uh, was what well, what it was called. I had some friends who had gone through the training, and basically, it was two intensive weekends <clears throat> where you have a facilitator. You're in a hotel ballroom with, I don't know, 500 strangers. And without even going into what they talk about, it was the understanding that everybody's fucked up. Mm. <laughs> can I say that? Can I yes, say that you can. So it was... Me seeing people, and I was 27 at the time, not diagnosed. You know, my mother wasn't diagnosed. But I became aware that no matter what age, no matter what socioeconomic status, education, ethnicity, religion, pretty much everybody in that room had some thing that was fucking them up in life and they were kind of miserable and the experience of the intensive training brought me to a place of having compassion for my parents and viewing them as children and what they went through and how they were unable to deal with their their own family dysfunction. So, you know, they never did any quote-unquote work on themselves. <laughs> and, and it was from that experience and then reading books by uh, um, uh, Louise Hayes um, and uh, Healing the Shame That Binds You where I started to have an opening. And then I moved to California, and I went to healing circles. And I had done psychotherapy before, but it was the community rather than one-on-one -on -one that was so important. And it was the knowledge of you're not alone. All of these thoughts that make you feel like you're free, you're not alone <laughs> right everybody has some of those thoughts and and I um I think there was the beginning of my healing uh and then it was just sort of you know continued reading and opening up to seeing the power of the universe and I think a lot of it is also <clears throat> Becoming uh, more deeply rooted in my own spirituality. I had, uh, my mother was raised Catholic. My father was Jewish. I sort of chose Judaism. Intellectually, it made more sense to me. Um, also, uh, for a variety of reasons. I also grew up in a very Jewish community. Uh, you know, uh, Reformed Jewish, not very religious but I, I believe it was like a deep faith in god or uh, or a higher spirit that enabled me to become more comfortable in myself which is great and i had forgotten you know <laughs> that you the whole you were coming out also and that that creates so much stress so i just love the fact that you've been through enough in your life that kind of i i don't want to assume this but i'm gonna just say it led you to when this all occurred this diagnosis occurred it actually made some of what you were doing a little easier oh Definitely, definitely. I mean, it, and, and, you know, I've also 
talked or written about. In some ways, it was bittersweet because it forced me to be more intentional about how I spend my days, how <coughs> who I surround myself with, right. where I put my my energy. You know, my energy waxes and wanes, and I have to nurture it uh, in a way. You know, I I marvel at people that could stand up and speak to a audience for an hour because I no longer have the capacity to do that. I was a teacher. I could do it years ago. But when you realize that energy is, uh, <laughs> it's not ever flowing, you know, um, you, you, you know, you, or at least I did, I became just much more intentional about how I, I used it. Absolutely. I want to segue into <laughs> Because we got we've got some fun stuff to talk about. What you did in other ways when you found out with this diagnosis, and I read um, an article that you sent me. Um, one is you <laughs> Death Cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's super exciting. The other thing is what's so interesting, like I'm a minimalist. So there was something about how decluttering can help you process grief. So that's very fascinating to me. And then planning, planning the fact that, and I think everyone should do this regardless of a diagnosis, but I loved how intentional you were about your planning. Cause I've done a lot of the same things that you've done as far as planning that someday I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And what can I do to make that as easy as possible for the people that are left behind? So we've done all that. We have a trust. We've, we've done those things. A lot of people don't, and you are more intentional about it. Can we jump into all of that? Uh, Sure. Okay, where should I start? Death well, Cafe. start with the minimalism because I think that that's probably smaller and the other two go together a little bit better, maybe. Um, well, I don't, you know, I haven't read the Marie Kondo stuff. I have read, um, I think I've read more Scandinavian uh, uh, perspective on minimalism. I can't remember the books I read, but that was my introduction to it. And I think it it may be kind of a, a something that as you you know you you're working on your career, your twenties and thirties, you're accumulating um I mean gosh, with Amazon Prime, right? You know? Yeah. You you want it, you got it within a day. You know, so it it and if you're doing well financially, you know, often you look toward things that will make life easier, life more comfortable. And I guess at a certain point, and I know I've, I've gone back and forth with this in my life because I would be somewhere and then I'd move. And I knew that selling or donating and or donating all my things really was therapeutic yeah so it's kind of this like love hate relationship with stuff um and i i think i I mean i still you know i'm a consumer of course but i have a different relationship and it's really nice to give away stuff that Someone else can use, someone else can treasure for a while, someone else finds value, and just, you know, that whole gifting process is a wonderful feeling. So that, I mean, that's really all I have to say about decluttering. I, I, I would like to do an episode at some point about it that digs deeper into it, because... Uh, God, I can't remember the, the term. I think it's a Swedish term. But it is, I think, translated into death cleaning. Oh, wow. That's, ter- <laughs> yeah, it, that's almost bad. terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, not if you're familiar with, like, Ingmar Bergman films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that 
for me, minimalism started because we were so stressed and, um, just coming home and just everything. We were so stressed. And a lot of it was because, um, of how much crap we had in our house. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it made such a huge difference in stress reduction. And I know some people do it for finances, which is great, or to leave a smaller footprint on the earth, which is great. It was all stress for us. And so it was interesting when I read this article that you shared with me, like, oh, what a great idea, because not only does it decrease stress, but like you're taking care of your stuff. And like with me, with my, I don't have a lot of jewelry or anything, but when my kids turn 18, if there's something that I want them to have when I die, I give it to them at 18. Hmm. I just give it to them because there's no sense in me hanging on to something unless I'm using it very consistently. And there's no sense in me hanging on to something that and that they're just, they're basically, they're just waiting for me to die to get it. And mm -hmm. I'm just, it's just sitting there until that happens. So I have just decided to be more intentional about what do I want to leave behind for the people that I love? And if it's something special, just do it now, mm -hmm. you know? So I guess I thought of that scenario as when I read this article that yes, it reduces stress not to have a lot of stuff. And it also, it kind of settles your affairs mm -hmm. without just easily. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, I was involved in art. I, I did this uh, Polaroid art transfers for years and kind of called myself an artist for a little while. And I haven't done it for about 10 years just because of the physicality involved. <clears throat> and it's really in the last year where I started going through all of these art supplies I've accumulated and realizing I'm never going to use them. So I've been giving them to um, uh, the nieces and nephews in the family. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, doing like art projects around them and leaving all the you know tools with them so that that's been a kind of nice process yeah same thing I just wondered how much of that you had done and how much it helped but yeah it is it's the same process so tell me a little bit about death cafe because that just doesn't <laughs> sound good <laughs> and how you settled things. And I'd like to, I mean, I know with the podcast, you're paying it forward because you're still learning and teaching. And I love that you said that because I think every experience in our lives we're learning from and we can potentially teach from. And you're doing that with intention. So I, I would love to know, kind of tie things up with how you've decided to settle your affairs and then anything that you would want to pass on to people. Well, it's an ongoing learning experience, and I read a lot of books and articles about it. And there is no formal, like, web portal that defines what to do. But you could sort of say the umbrella term is the death wellness movement, which <coughs> incorporates pragmatic things to do. You know, getting your finances in order, your state in order, your life care planning with your health care provider. I'm actually involved in an advisory, patient advisory council with my local HMO where um, they seek our input as patients on this whole life care planning process. How does your physician speak to you about these issues of if you're in an accident and you yeah. cannot make decisions for yourself, who is the next in line to make the decisions and what do you want? So you have to go through these what-if scenarios that are so hard for many people because we, we do not want to accept our own mortality. I mean, that is very apparent. I mean, especially when you have guys like Elon Musk and Larry Ellison uh, putting tons of research into uh, death-defying research. 
because they want to continue to live forever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so the Death Cafe is something I'd read about, went to the internet, found my local Death Cafe, and went to it a few times. And it's really like a meetup. You know, a lot of people are familiar with meetups. Yeah. But most of them are free. You go to some public location with a theme. And the Death Cafe is <coughs> meant to engage people in conversations about death and have cake. <laughs> and so <coughs> I went to a couple. Ironically, it was held at a mortuary. They're not all held at, uh, you know, places that remind you about death. <laughs> but it was very nice. There was a facilitator. Maybe 20, 30 people showed up. A lot of people were around my age. I, you know, I certainly didn't feel like an anomaly when I went in. But pretty much, I was the only one who was talking about my own death. Everybody else was talking about the death of uh, a parent, a grandparent, or some family member close to them, where they were, you know, 20, 30 years at minimum, you know, away from that age. So I like the concept, but personally, I didn't get a lot out of it. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's um, kind of but, what I was wondering. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, I, so what I have found, you know, um, are books now. And it's a younger generation of people who are kind of leading the, the edge on the death wellness movement. Um, and there's an annual conference called Endwell that is held here in San Francisco. And <clears throat> the woman who started is a started is a physician and she has engaged a lot of people and it's an ever expanding community of people who talk about mortality. And a lot of them are palliative care doctors or uh, hospice workers, but you have designers, musicians. At this year's conference, um, oh God, there's a country, at, I can't remember, it's Garth Brooks or somebody like that is gonna be there. So it's, it's really exploded. And it's people talking about death. Well, I don't know if everyone knows this, but it is something that's going to happen at some <laughs> point. <laughs> and when that happens, you might want to be prepared for it. That's why I said I have, we have all of that set up. And it was very important to me to not leave people behind. I think when you are... Um, diagnosed with something that makes that much more in your face, then you're forced to deal with it a little bit more quickly, or maybe it's more in your mind, but it's not anything we should all be doing it. So I just thought that was interesting, that information, the Death Cafe. I was like, wow, I didn't have any idea any of that existed. So well, I uh, bet yeah, there's one near you. I bet there. You know what? I could look it up. So to end to to end our time together, which has been fantastic. What would you recommend to people? Do you have? Is there any like anything that you would say to people who are struggling, other than to find your podcast because that's a huge way that they can learn. Um, and all of that information, all of your information will be included. But is there anything? Do you have like a pearl? for us that you would share with people? Well, <laughs> gosh, I would say that the most miserable people I've met in life do not have a chronic health condition, mm. which, uh, <laughs> so, um, 
that makes me think about gratitude that if and it sounds so hackneyed and trite but if you can cultivate a sense of gratitude and there are all different ways to do that and live in the here and now so when you're experiencing some kind of physical, emotional, spiritual crisis, you can sit there and go within and realize in that moment you are breathing, you are able to breathe and practice some deep inhalation and deep exhalation and remember what you're grateful for. Tap into that. I think that's a start of healing. Thank you for taking the time to get naked with us. If you'd like to bear it all with me, get in touch. Your story is unique and valuable. Let's show it off.